This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. My immediate right is Mike Petriello, whose face you've likely seen on television. Uh, from MLB Advanced Media to his right, Darren Woolman, who's also the uh, genius behind uh, Baseball Savant. And now for the greatest reveal since we found out that Soylent Green was people. <laughs> On the end, please welcome the great Tom Tango. Uh, and we'll take questions in just a few minutes. I'll moderate that, but Mike, Darren, and Tom have a brief presentation on kind of where things have come and where they are heading uh, through as we start year number three with StatCast. Mike? Yeah, brief is a hopeful word because we have a lot of stuff we want to go through today. Um, and we get to follow Bill James getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, so no pressure there. Listen, <laughs> StatCast has been around for two years, right? Two years in baseball time is not very long at all. And what's really cool is uh, a lot of this stuff has already permeated the baseball vocabulary. Like Chris Bryant talks about his launch angle. Uh, Mark Trumbo talks about his launch angle. Uh, everybody probably already knows Seth Lugo uh, and the spin rate story. Like th these guys are already talking about this, and we think it's already made changes to the way the game is played. Uh, and that's really cool. And so the way we've started is like just observing. You know, what do you see? What can you count? What can you measure? Moving into metrics. And then you know, I think there was a big story last week about how we're going to create a new wins above replacement. Uh, maybe a little premature for that. We're not quite there yet. That's a long way off. But um, what we are doing is really uh, getting a lot of progress made into what we can measure and turning that into skills. We want to make this more baseball, and we want to get it in a way that the, the common fan can appreciate, uh, as well as all of you super fans here. Right, so as Mike just mentioned, the way we're kind of structuring this right now is um, the first couple years we were observing a lot of things, exit velocity, um, route efficiency, um, the various metrics. And what we're able to do now that the sample size is a little larger is we're able to start coming up with metrics. Um, Tom's helped out with barrels, um, and just recently we came up with hit probability and catch probability. And we're online now, so let's, let's do this for real now. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway. We're we're a good advantage. Yeah, we're <laughs> a I used to experience put to good use. So anyway, here are some of the big fancy numbers, which you can see most of. Uh, anyway, over the last two years, we have recorded like a million and a half pitches. Uh, you can see 300,000 balls in play. The numbers kind of speak for themselves. Like this is a massive data set uh, in just two years. And as you can imagine, this is going to keep increasing uh, as time goes on. And now we'll hope that the rest of this is in the middle and not on the edges. Uh, and this is kind of what we were just talking about, the vocabulary here, you know, the launch angle, exit velocity. It's, it's really cool how quickly this has permeated baseball. And kind of what Darren was just talking about here, you, know, you start at the bottom. What can you observe? You know, then you turn that into a metric, which we just, we just uh, introduced our first metric last year, which we'll get to in a second, is barrels. Uh, it turns into skills, ratings, and eventually a player value system. Whether that's war, whether that's something else, we don't, we don't know yet. But that's obviously going to be an output goal because we have great data. Uh, this was our first metric last year. It was a barrel. And we called it that because exit velocity is awesome. You want to hit the ball hard. But you don't want to hit the ball hard straight up or straight down. You want a great combination of exit velocity and launch angle. So, uh, this was uh, something we worked with Tom on. It's the perfect combination of those two things. If you barrel the ball up, uh, that's a batting average of over 800. It's like the best thing a hitter can do, and it only happens 6% of the time. And there's a lot of other batted ball types that we'll get to in a second. Uh, and then one other cool thing we did last year is you know, putting data towards injury monitoring. So what you can see on the right there, that's Carlos Correa, uh, his exit velocity chart. And I labeled where he played through pain, but I probably didn't need to, because I think it's pretty clear where he was trying to play through an ankle, play through a shoulder. And uh, the performance just wasn't there. You know, the other one is Bryce Harper's throwing strength. Everybody's talking about, is Bryce Harper playing through a right shoulder injury? He refused to confirm it. I look at that last two months of the year, and it, that also corresponds to them playing shower. And I say, there's something there. Uh, so here, what we noticed is that uh, at various launch angles, you get different kinds of performance. So at 12 degrees, that's when you get the maximum batting average. But at 28 degrees is where you get the maximum power. So that's where the hitters are, are trying to hit launch angle somewhere around 12 to 28. And then this is for exit speed. Uh, up until 88 miles an hour, there's not much difference in terms of the, uh, the impact of the performance. But then starting from there and going up, up to around 115, the performance keeps going much higher. 
and then starts to tail off a little bit, and we'll explain the reason for that a little later. And you can hit the ball too hard. It's you can definitely hit the ball too hard. So that was just a brief sampling of the, the stuff we've done. We could have done a 10-hour presentation just on what we've learned to date, uh, but we have so much we want to get to. So uh, we're going to show you some of the new stuff for this year, and then uh, after that, we've got uh, Tom has a lot of really cool stuff that uh, you know we're going to get through. So the first one here, yeah, Darren, so, I'll start with this. What we're looking at here, and this is a really cool chart uh, for data people especially. So on the, uh, the red dots on the left are all the outs by outfielders. All the green are all the base hits uh, that were hit to outfielders, and then the blue is base hits, or outs that were caught by another outfielder that was, wasn't the guy that we're, we're talking about. So if you look in the middle there, the red and the green, that's what we're really concerned about, because you can look at the, the top red, those are for sure outs. The green are for sure hits, uh, the, the, the big chunks. But in the middle, you have a, a, some red and some green mixed in there. And that's what we're really concerned about, because those are the plays that we're deeming five stars or highlight plays. And it, it correlates to what we've already observed. If you look on the right, this is hang time and uh, the distance an outfielder had to cover. And if you notice, the gradient in the middle, those are about your 50% plays, that 50% of outfielders and uh, would have caught or it would have been a base hit. Well, we can talk about this as it's going on. Basically, the history of, of fielding, you know, it started with fielding percentage for how many years? And we all know that's bogus. You know, if you're not good enough to get to the ball, you can't be charged with an error. That's a terrible way to measure defense. Uh, we moved on to advanced stuff, DRS, UZR, uh, much more uh, a sound fundamental basis. You know, how hard was the play? How often was it made? Uh, but it was based on a lot of human inputs. And so there's, you know, obvious issues with that. So we are moving on to what we can measure. You know, so catch probability, which we introduced last week at Sloan, which you may be familiar with. How far did you have to go to get the ball? How much time did you have to get there? And as time goes on, we'll, we'll add for direction, we'll add for walls. But for right now, it's those two things. You can put a percentage on any batted ball. So let's ask, I always forget the slides here. So you can say, yeah, we have five-star plays, four-star plays. And I think this will be a really effective way, um, just on a broadcast, to say, well, that was a four-star play. Or that ball gets caught 90% of the time. Uh, or 10% of the time, based on the numbers. Uh, the design on the right is an example of what we're working on, how we may show this on, on Darren's site. Uh, and you know, you'll be able to make those for any player, which I think is really cool. Now this is a question for you. Was this a great play? It looks like a great play. Yeah, everybody's saying no, because everybody knows you know, who it is. Uh, but really, the point here is, you see the distance, you see the hang time. Without context, you have no idea what those numbers mean. And uh, we didn't always do a great job of adding context, and that's what we're trying to do better on. Uh, the data here shows you that this ball gets caught 75% of the time. You can see the route here wasn't that great, uh, and that's a really cool way. It's like the eyes, the eye test isn't always the right answer. Uh, this one looks pretty good. And as you can see, it is good. It's a 7% catch rate. So two great looking plays with very different numbers behind them. Uh, and that's great for analytical tools. It's also just great for narrative storytelling. So what we're able to do now with this data is we're able to ask the question, if uh, Mike Trout was hit this ball, would he have caught it, a catch that Billy Hamilton made? So what you're looking at here, um, those little blobs that are growing is uh, Mike Trout's range last year to a ball that Lorenzo Cain, and I'm talking about the one on the left. So based off the hang time that we, we've observed of Mike Trout, he would not have been able to catch that ball. And so we're able to start taking all these metrics and create cool visualizations that we can start people can start to use and leverage and ask the question. I mean, that's the age-old question. Would this player have made a play that Billy Hamilton made or a player that somebody else didn't make? We're able to start answering that. So that was catch probability, which we've already started using on MLB Network uh, for the WBC in last night's game. You might have seen it. Uh, the other new thing for this year is hit probability. And it's the exact same idea. I don't have to explain to you all why batting average is flawed. You all know that. Uh, uh, OPS is better, way to run's created is better, but it's still based on outcomes. You know, if you crush a ball and the outfielder makes a great play, it's still an offer. And that's not really about skills. We're trying to get back to skills. You see the Mike Trout freeze frame there. He hits that ball really hard. You don't know the outcome of it. But whether the center fielder makes a great play or falls on his face, that shouldn't have anything to do with what Mike Trout did. We're trying to get back to the baseball skills, which I think is really cool. So here's another example. You can use it for hitters or pitchers. <laughs> this is Matt Cain. Uh, Matt Cain did his job, right? Ball's not hit that hard, very high pop-up. 5% of the time that lands for a hit. Overwhelmingly, that's an out. Didn't even reach the warning track. But you can see the outfielder messed it up so badly, he didn't even get charged with an error. So we're we really going to kill Matt Cain and say he got a double and maybe an earned run? Traditionally, yeah. But that's not what we want to do anymore. We want to say he showed the skill 
uh, even though the outcome didn't necessarily work in his favor. So that, that's really exciting for us. And if you accumulate all those over the course of a season, you can come up with an estimated uh, weighted on base or OPS or whatever you want to show it. You're not surprised Kershaw's number one here from last year. The gap between one and two might be surprising, but Kyle Hendricks is really the story because the big question was, is he good or is the Cubs defense making him look good? By this, this has nothing to do with Cubs defense. This is just showing Kyle Hendricks actually showed some real skill. I should note this also does include uh, strikeouts and walks. It's not just on contact. So that's a pretty cool story for us. All right, so you're probably, uh, you're all here to hear Tom talk. So enough of Darren and I. <laughs> so Tom here has a bunch of, of really interesting things and each one of these deserves like an hour long dissertation, but uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna go through them relatively quickly and you know, obviously any questions afterwards. Uh, so Tom, Thank start you. off. Um, so we have uh, millions of data points and what we're trying to do always is trying to organize it. Organize in such a way that we can start asking questions. So in this particular case, what we've got is uh, we split up all the batted balls based on their performance. The barrels is the easy one, the one that we talked about. But then there's also the near barrels, the solid contacts, those that were missed out on being barrels by a few miles an hour or a few degrees. And those are also uh, solid impacts, as you can see, by the WOBA. And, uh, and then we can look at the third group, which is the flares and burners. So those are the ones that are either solid contact or a good angle, but not both. Uh, even so, it's still a very high impact uh, batted ball. Uh, so once we've gone through those three, all that's left is all the uh, below average batted balls. So there's the weak contacts and then the hit under and the hit overs. So this speaks very much to the way you would normally think of a hitter. And now that we've organized all the data in this manner, we, we can now create leaderboards, we can identify hitters, we can say Ryan Schimpf is, hits under the ball a lot, uh, we can find similar players, we can look at how they're gonna do in the future. So it's, it's a great, uh, great way to, uh, to be able to segment all that data. Uh, this one is an interesting one. Uh, this was uh, Giancarlo Stanton at the Home Run Derby. He had 80, 80 batted balls, so we, uh, we captured them all. And uh, if you look at the 25 degrees, uh, so the, the y-axis on both is the uh, vertical launch angle. The uh, x-axis is distance on the left and speed on the right. Uh, his median was 25 degrees. So what's great about this is that this was the ideal experiment. It's the same hitter against the same pitcher in the same park, trying to do the same thing uh, at the same time. And we can see, therefore, that he was going for 25 degrees. Uh, everything was around the 25 degrees. Half of his balls were hit 25 to, uh, 20 to 30 degrees. So we know that that's what he's trying to do. But what's also interesting is that if you look at the far right, uh, he had three batted balls uh, hit over 120 miles an hour, but two of them were at 10 degrees. And if you trace it back to the left side, you'll see that the distance of those balls were under 350 feet. So that's the interesting part that you want to hit the ball hard, but not too hard, because if you hit it too hard, you're probably hitting it flush, and the batter is trying to give up some speed to get some sort of loft. Uh, and this just groups the data in terms of uh, five miles an hour. You can see from zero to 60, there's really not much difference, all the way up to around 80. Then you get the, the donut hole between 80 and 85. You can think of those as balls hit to the outfielder, so that's why the batter is not going to want to hit it there. Uh, and then it gets progressively higher and higher up until around uh, one point, 115 miles an hour or so, uh, where the production starts going down. Uh, so here, this is all balls uh, hit at 95 miles an hour at 30 degrees. And that's the spray chart, which you can see on Savant uh, right now. Uh, the WOBA for that combination is 434. Now you could also see the combination, the WOBA for any kind of combination, you can see at 96 miles an hour, it jumps up by over 100 points. At 94 miles an hour, it drops down by 80 points. So it's very sensitive, the performance, based on the speed, at least for this particular launch angle. So once we do that, we have 130,000 uh, batted balls. Let's apply the same method to every single batted ball. So let's take every batted ball and add one mile an hour. And what happens? So in this particular case, league-wide, the, uh, the WOBA would go up by uh, 17 points if you add one mile an hour, and similar impact if you subtract one mile an hour. And then for the launch angle, if you add one degree, the impact goes up by four points, and if you subtract one degree, it goes down by four points. 
Now this is league-wide. Every hitter is different. Uh, so we can see Ryan Howard is the hitter who's most impacted uh, by his speed. So him adding one mile an hour or subtracting one mile an hour, that two mile an hour difference, has an impact to his overall WOBA of 38 points. So that includes his walks and strikeouts. Now I should point out that you can't just add one mile an hour and add one degree without something else happening. And chances are you're going to strike out more. You have to start your swing earlier, you're going to hit under the ball, something's going to happen. So we're not saying that this is what's going to happen, but of the guys that are most susceptible uh, to changing their approach, these would be the guys. And similar for, uh, and, and for the speed, some guys like Billy Hamilton aren't affected at all. So whether he would hit the ball one mile an hour more or less, his performance would remain the same. Uh, and then similar for the, uh, the launch angle. Sorry, I jumped ahead here. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to have a picture of Kelly Leak smoking a cigarette in our, in our fancy uh, saber deck here. Explain, Tom, why we're, gonna, why we're talking about this. All right, so, uh, so like I said, we're always trying to organize the data in such a manner that we can try to tell some sort of story. And we, we were trying to identify those uh, outfielders who were supposed to catch the easy fly balls but did not. And they did not because one of his teammates uh, went out of his way to catch that fly ball. So I explained this story to one of the VPs, and right away he says, Kelly Leak. <laughs> and then I, 10 minutes later, I go and ask somebody else, and they present the same story, and he blurts out, Kelly Leak. And so we have the Kelly Leak leaderboard, and we see that <laughs> Herrera led the league last year with six times that he raced for a ball that somebody else was camped under. I can't wait till the Phillies come to town so I can go ask the corner outfielders about all this. Well, and, it's, and it's funny that you know, we bring this up because me and Mike were at a spring training game two days ago and a ball was hit to a left fielder and a center fielder came racing over, but it fell between them. So we wouldn't have caught it in the Kelly League, but it was the same situation. Uh, so going along the lines of trying to organize the data, uh, we track the position of all the players uh, on the field at all times for every pitch. So we're trying to, since they can be anywhere, we're trying to group it in such a way that we can try to identify certain patterns and zones. So this one is for the third baseman against left-handed hitters. Uh, the red zones is where he's normally stationed, where you'd expect him to be, uh, what I call here standard back and standard in. But they can be anywhere. He could be guarding the line, he could be in, he could be in the shortstop spot, second base spot, uh, right field rover. So we're basically, all we're doing is saying, uh, Based on where he's playing, we're going to group him in this particular zone. So once we do that one, we could do it for all the fielders against lefties and righties. So the top line is right-handed hitters, third, short, second, first. And those are where their standard zones are. And then the bottom three is for the outfielders, which are more consistent between righties and lefties. So what's cool with something like this is a team like the Cubs, where they don't really get credited with a ton of shifts, but they say they shift. There's a lot of different ways to shift, so they might not be extreme over to one side, but they've moved a little bit, and something like this will be able to really pick up on that. Right, and what's good is that we have all the data, everything's classified, and uh, baseball savant is gonna be able to well, use that data. It makes it not binary, like, I mean, you could say, yes, there was a shift, but this gives it a lot more detail to run different splits, and you know, yeah. is, is it successful? Should they be doing that? And it's important to be able to visualize it, which right. kind of leads us into you right here. Right, so this year, um, the first two years, we were doing a lot of data collecting. We were putting out visuals, but hopefully this year, we're working on a new framework to put out it, new visuals very agile, quickly. And so these are a few that we've got cooking up in our uh, what we were calling our lab. Um, the top left one is a very intuitive way to show um, launch angle, exit velocity, how high it went, and the, the result. Um, that's going to be in game day this year. Uh, we put a lot of work into it. Uh, we think it looks really good. Um, the rest are more um, kind of just things we're, we're cooking up. Um, like the one on the far right is an interesting visual. It looks like a big blob, but that's every batted ball in game seven of the World Series, uh, where the players started on the play, the trajectory of the ball. So we're playing a lot with different angles. Um, what tells the best story um, to, to relay this data to the user? and um, That way you can get you know, best bang for your buck. Um, so the one in the middle is kind of cool too, uh, bottom middle. It shows a percentage based off uh, where each batter ball went, uh, along with trajectory. We have it at like a 45 degree angle. We think that best shows the trajectory. So 
we're very cognizant of wanting to still tell a story. This, this data is very complicated, so it's not helpful to just put out numbers if you can't tell a story from some type of visual. And as Tom was alluding, um, we're trying to make as much data, data as accessible as possible, so Baseball Savant is basically our lab um, where we're going to put out new information, new visuals um, for people to, to consume. Um, so today I added a catch probability leaderboard. So what you can do is you can go on it, um, see who made uh, the most five-star plays, the percentage that they made, uh, all the way down to one star. Um, so it, we're going to be continuing to, add, continuing to add to that. Um, yeah, what you see on the list there is what's available now by opening day, but that is not the entirety of what will be available. We hope to keep adding more and more stuff. Like the cool charts you can make. That's Mookie Betts, but you can go there and make one for any outfielder right now. Uh, so that's just like a fraction of the things we're doing, but we didn't want to make a 10-hour presentation. Uh, but yeah, that's what we have for you today. Right, folks, if you have questions, go ahead and write them on the note cards. Jeff is our lovely assistant. He's coming around to uh, collect those. So make sure you get your questions in on the note card. We have one. It's already been submitted, and before we get into StatCast, people want to know, Tom, the derivation of your pseudonym, Tom Tango. Uh, I, one of my old jobs, uh, there was somebody in the military that was one of our employees, and he was teaching us the uh, military alphabet, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. So we thought it would be fun if we all just adopted our initials as uh, based on the military alphabet. So since I'm Tom, Tango is the T for the military, and that's where it came from. <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, I want to go back to, to Tom, some of what you talked about with regards to, to the batted ball data when you were looking at um, you know, the weighted on base average of barrels, flares, um, you know, the, the three areas where it looked like the weighted on base percentage, weighted on base average was well above 600. Uh, what do you, you think? If any, there is correlation on average and balls in play on something like that if you were to add, say, home runs into the batting average on balls in play data? Um, so the, the battles that we have, we could actually split it up even further. So if we were to limit it to 106 miles an hour at the same launch angles, those would be essentially super barrels. We don't have a good name for it. But those would be even more indicative of, we of do the that. talent. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag super barrel. Yeah. <laughs> have you guys found that, you know, I, I guess now that you have basically two years worth of data, that if there are players that have consistently hit the ball hard in 2015, do they generally correlate with 2016? Are you able to, I mean, what have you been able to see just kind of in, in terms of the differences between the two years? Is it, a, is it a skill that repeats itself? I think for the most part, I can't say we've, we have actually done like a serious scientific correlation study, but other than guys who got injured, for the most part, yeah. I mean, you know, Mike Trout, Miguel Cabrera, these guys are up there from year to year, which makes sense because it's not just about outcome or trying to get to skill. Like it takes a skill. You can't hit the ball 110 miles by accident. That's a good way to put it, right? And it takes real skill to be able to do that and to elevate. So for the most part, yeah, the guys at the top of that leaderboard have, have been pretty similar. Yeah, look, at, look at Stan. Yeah. He's the only guy to hit 120, he's done it four times. Yeah, it's a real skill. You can't do that by accident. The exit speed definitely repeats. So it's definitely an indicator of uh, future talent. So whether you have past performance or just exit speed, those two together will, are, are pretty much in sync with uh, how uh, they correlate to the future. What about with the angle? Because there was an article just recently in the Arizona Republic, Nick Picoro wrote, talking about Paul Goldschmidt, who, you know, Goldschmidt was, I think, two years ago, right, the only player whose average exit velocity was above average every single week of the season. This year, he hit far fewer balls, more balls on the ground than he had in previous seasons. So when you look at, by comparison, players that go from 15 to 16, is launch angle far more variable on average for the hitters? Uh, I don't know about more variable, but it's definitely a, a strong indicator as well. Um, anything like at above 20, mile, 20 degrees uh, with the high speed, those two together, uh, they give you a high correlation in terms of uh, the talent of the player. I think one of the interesting things too is growing up, I was always taught to swing down the ball, hit the ball down, mm -hmm. hit the ball down. But what we're finding with the data, it's not necessarily true. You want to hit the ball up, you want to drive it. You know, it's, uh, 
And I think that's been one of the cool things that StatCast has provided is, you know, we can start to change some of these old philosophies that we're finding not to be true. Yeah, well, I'm working on a cool project where uh, I sent all of our beat writers to uh, the guys who had a double-digit increase in home runs last year to ask the same three questions. And I was like, you know, did you try to hit more home runs? You know, can you increase your launch angle, and why do you think you hit more home runs? And we're starting to get some of the answers back, and they're, they're fascinating. Some guys are like, yeah, I'm trying to hit more home runs. And then Miguel Cabrera is like, I don't know, man, I just go up and hit the ball. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's going to be cool. I'm really interested to see. Like, these are going to be like 50 guys, and if we can really see a pattern of like, I, launch angle is cool to me. I'm trying to elevate. Maybe that tells us a little bit about where extra home runs are coming. Well, that's, it's interesting you mention that because there's been a lot of talk about where the ball's juiced, right, in 2016. It was one of the, the biggest home run seasons of all time, right? We saw an enormous junk, jump. I think it was 114 players hit 20 home runs or more. It was 114 or 117. And I wondered how much of it was a correlation between hitters who have changed their, because we see it in every Twitter hitting coach, we see it in every guy who's gone to the leg raise. I think Aaron Boone, if anybody was here last year, talked about the move, right? Where they have a little bit of a hitch with their hand and a leg raise to try and get, to create that, to hit that ball in the air. If that's really where we're seeing this increase in home runs, how much of it is, you know, climate certainly could be a factor. Maybe if the balls were a little different, that would be a factor. But if guys are really trying to hit the ball in the air more, doesn't it stand to reason that that's why there are more homers? I don't know if it's 100%. I think there's, like Brian Mills did a, a very compelling one about the strike zone being an issue. You know, everybody thought it was the ball, and then Dr. Nathan kind of put out that study that said, ah, I'm not so sure about that. So I do think this is part of it, because I think hitters using data has been uh, has lagged behind pitchers, right? And I think the hitters are really starting to get smarter. And they're trying, and there's so many guys just talking about it. So I don't know if that'll answer the whole thing, but I think it's got to be part of it. Well, like one of the what-ifs that, that you saw there, Chris Bryant with a launch angle, uh, he was the one where whether he, he got one or less uh, degrees on his launch angle, his uh, impact, his WOBA was unchanged. <laughs> and this is a guy who actively said, he, I will change my launch angle. And so it's very interesting that he may have figured out his perfect launch angle. Because well, it's different for every guy. That, right? Teams are getting smarter. They're finding ways to explain to these players that they, can, they need to change their approach, or they can change their approach, and it'll produce more home runs. They're, they're hiring players now to help translate some of these things, whereas some analytics departments, it's been lost in translation. You have spreadsheets. Players don't want to look at spreadsheets. They want to be able to visually understand this, and if a, you know, an ex-player that kind of can be the bridge between that gap can explain to them, like, you just need more launch angle. Look at this chart. Like, if you, if you hit, when you hit it last year at this launch angle, you did. You hit ten more home runs, so they now they can practice that, and they can go in the cage, and they can work on these types of things. Let's talk a little bit about the defensive stuff, and specifically the outfield defense get, that you guys have been working so hard on, really over the last year. Um, the the one to five star plays that that you have, as you kind of looked at those numbers and started to put it together, where did you feel like that kind of average defender lies? Or have you figured that out in there? Does the average defender make the one, two, three star plays at a 95% range? Where is that? Because I think we're always constantly, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, where is average so I can try and determine where somebody is? You know what, you know what I found? Maybe you guys have seen the same thing. Is I found it most interesting that the guys who rated relatively poorly overall, still had some pretty decent plays, right? Yeah. Like, it maybe consistency is the same thing in the field at the plate. Like, mm. Lonnie Chisenhall is a great example. He made some really good plays, but overall, rated only okay. Um, I mean, the guys you'd expect to be at the top are at the top, right? Billy Hamilton is unbelievable. Kiermaier is unbelievable. Uh, Ender and Ciarte, Adam Eaton. You know, average, I think we're still learning that. I mean, it's, it's really brand new to us. We're excited to kind of see how it plays out in real time this year. Yeah, one of the fascinating ones, too, was Max Kepler in right field for the Twins. He made, I think, six highlight plays, but he, he made a lot of bad plays. He had, um, a he had a really low percentage of one stars, which I found fascinating. Like, he's great at making exceptional plays, but sometimes he lacks, he doesn't make the routine plays. Yeah, if I can read Tom's mind for a minute. The, the star system is really cool for, like, broadcast and the, the common and fan, but it's, it's not something you'd probably use so much for an analytical purpose, right? You can go back to the, kind of the plus one, minus one. Right. I mean, the way you're used to with UZR, that's like a, a very good way to do it. So what's the chance of him making it? If he does make it, you get plus above that. And if he doesn't make it, you get a big minus. So if it's a 75% play like we saw with the Kemp one, if he makes it, that's plus 0.25. But if he misses it, it's minus 0.75. So it's, it's, a, it's a solid accounting system. Um, but the star system is a lot easier to describe and present in terms of broadcast. 
With player range, you saw it on the Mookie bets there, and you guys have done a lot of that. I think the, the Kevin Kiermeyer one actually covered an entire outfield when you guys did the Basically, graphic on that. He's right? really good. <laughs> hot, hot take, I know. I just, Mike, slow down. You know, <laughs> still got to make it all the way to 330. The, um, but in terms of, and again, I'll go back to average. In terms of being able to overlay that or see that with where an average defender at a position lies, will there be or have you guys been able to take a look at and see Okay, this is where most players, even if it's instead of, um, you know, the the average, more like the medium kind, of, the the median area for for where a, a corner outfielder, center fielder would make plays. I'll see one of the main things, like visually, if you're going to look at it, is you want to get rid of the noise. You want to get rid of the 100% plays that you know every outfielder is going to catch, and you want to get rid of all the base hits. And so that that are for sure 100% base hits. And then that's where the true range for the outfielder lies. And then what you can start to do with that is you can start to compare against other outfielders. And overlay another outfielder's range on top of that and say, okay, Billy Hamilton obviously gets way more range than, say, Mike Trout. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, those type of things, uh, league average can be a little harder because there's a lot of other variables that go into it, like how fast they're running and, and things like that. But in terms of plays made, there's a, does there tend to be a number that or an area that kind of stands out in that? Uh, well, for every combination of speed and distance, we've identified like how often the play is made. So, you know, at a, at a particular uh, running speed, if you get to like 30 feet per second, you know that that's an elite level. So whenever you see someone running at that speed, you know that what's about to happen is going to be a great play if, if he manages to keep the ball in the glove. And 25 feet, if you're running at 25 feet and less, you know it's a gimme. It's, it's a jog, and we know that if a, that's the fastest a player ran and he caught that ball, you know you did not see something outstanding. So there's that range in between there where we can figure out how, how tough a play it was. Yeah, we saw that last night at the WBC game. For, so Dalton Pompey makes this great diving catch last night, and the data comes back, it was like 85% you know, catch probability. And right. I, right off the bat, you're like, okay, that's kind of odd, but when you look at the data, uh, his speed wasn't that great. Right. You know, it took a fine it was like route. 26 or Yeah, and you can see right away, well, you know, it didn't, we were watching it live, but it didn't look that fast. It, I mean, the data said that, and that backs up a number that, you know, might not be what the eye test says. Right, and it, and it wasn't that, like, I, I, he can run faster than what he was running. It looked like he was, I mean, not dogging it. it he caught the ball, but it, looks like, it looked like he wasn't running as hard as he could, and then he made an exceptional play. And we can kind of, we can look at the data now and, and kind of weigh that. Yeah, it works both ways. I mean, we showed the Matt Kemp play, and you know, here we are being buzzkills and saying it wasn't a great play, but it works the other way too. I mean, there's Adam Eaton has made a bunch of plays where it's a running catch, but he doesn't leave his feet, and you'd never see it on a highlight play or highlight reel. And then you look at the data and you say oh, that was actually an awesome play. He did a great job of getting there, and it's just a different way to look at it. It's, it's another you know narrative device. For that. Right, Kevin Kiermaier is the exact same way. Like we'll we'll look at the data, and he'll make an exceptional catch, but he's just so fast that he can cover a lot more ground than an average outfielder. It gives them a lot more, a few more five-star plays. Yeah, that's going to be one of the challenges. Simply the optics, the optics won't necessarily match what the data is going to say. So, it, because we don't see the player from the starting point, from the the point where the ball's hit or the ball is thrown. Uh, so that's going to that's going to be like the big challenge in terms of trying to explain things to to people. That that's a big shift. Tom, are you suggesting that an ex-ball player in the booth is going to have a hard time when a great diving play doesn't have great numbers to it? <laughs> We'll see. That's going to be fun. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Good answer. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Although I would argue that a lot of the ball players know that. I mean, I think it's probably more from the television viewer, right, that doesn't see the, the play before because you're able to track not just reaction time but positioning in terms of, you know, what somebody can do pre-pitch to be able to be in a position to make the, a play. The camera lies to you. I mean, it really does because by the time they cut to the outfield, the ball is already in the outfield. The guy's already moving, and you miss that. So it may look like he's going perfectly, but you didn't see him going this way first, uh, and that's tough. What's, what's interesting is kind of the way we've defined this. We, we talk to ball players and try to get their feedback. So when we say hang time for this, it's not actually off a of bad ball contact. It's off of when the pitcher releases it, and that's what we call opportunity time. And, you know, we, we saw Kevin Kiermaier talking about, well, I can read the catcher sign, so I get a little bit of a head start, you know. And we talked to uh, an outfielder a couple of days ago at camp, and he's like, yeah, you know, the, uh, the shortstop when I played, he put his fingers behind his back so I knew what kind of pitch it was going to be, so I'd get a head start. So I love that. And I think that's important for us, is not just to cook up these numbers and spreadsheets, but talk to actual ballplayers and say, does this pass a smell test for you, and does this fly? And so far, so good, but that's exciting for us to, you know, be able to improve the numbers that way. 
future value metrics. I know Jeff Passon just recently wrote an article um, saying that you are the wave of the future. I don't know, was, was Jeff actually Boy. at Sloan or was he just? Uh, no, that was a phone call. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's always a phone call that I love yeah. when Jeff calls. It's great. Uh, the, uh, but in, you know, we certainly understand what the limitations that wins above replacement may have, whether it be what you're using as a component for a defensive metric or how you're, you know, whether or not you're using weighted on base average or another metric in there. How do you guys view, I guess this is kind of more the initial thought, is it do you view war as a jumping off point for it? Do you view an overall player evaluation um, system that's that's different than what wins above replacement is? For me, war is simply going to be the byproduct of everything we do. Because we're going to be so focused on the little things, things that you could actually see like on game day or in a in broadcast. So the things that you really can talk about and compare. So like catch probability, hit probability, uh, you know, steal. When we get to steals, we'll do the steals as well. So those, those are like very specific things. They're tools-based things. We're going to be speaking really the language of the scouts more than anything. At the end, the things will roll up into war, but that's just going to be, you know, it's just going to be the byproduct of, of everything else that's going to be interesting. It's not like we're going to see war on the screen because it's got so much going into it. What we really care about is all the little components that makes up war. So that's why I'm not, I'm not too concerned about what war is. Yeah, I think Tom, Tom makes a good point. That, that here comes a new war, I think took off a little bit more last week than we wanted it to because, first of all, we're not ready for it yet. We haven't you know, mm -hmm. measured infield defense. There's a bunch of other things we want to include. At the end of the day, yeah, if we've got this data, we're going to want to make a player value number out of it. Is that the fourth version of, of wins above replacement or is it something else? I don't think we know yet, but you know, Tom's right. That's, what's more important is drilling down and getting to the, the inputs. Yeah, the way it. I say it is that we're in the third inning. So yeah, the third, that's perfect. We shouldn't be talking about <laughs> it now. I guess that was more my question was less about, you know, what would go into it because clearly you're going to have you know, potentially more tools-based data that would go into it that, that would seem to be accurate based on what the cameras and statcasts are catching and more about the way it's consumed because I do think that war is still scary for now maybe for a younger generation, you know, 20 years of people growing up with the statistic. They certainly have an understanding of it more, but it is as a broadcaster, it's complex to try and explain what wins above replacement is in a succinct manner that carries weight with an audience. So, is it on a replace? Are you going to use replacement level, or do you visualize something else that you know could come about that might be easier for people to understand for a win value on a player? Well, one one thing that I've done in the past is taken war and turned it into two dimensions, uh, what I call the individualized one loss record. And if you're familiar with uh, Bill James, his win shares, same idea. You've got wins and you've got losses. Uh, so that's the way I see it. You don't have to worry about what the replacement level is. Just make sure that things add up for wins and losses so that everything's in balance. Again, the replacement level is just the byproduct of everything else that goes into it. All right, so we have some questions from the audience here. And, and since, Mike, you mentioned infield defense, and in fact, we were just talking about this earlier. I think we talked about it the other day, too. Um, there's a lot of talk about balls in the air. How do you determine fielding probability on ground balls, especially concerning middle infielders? That is absolutely the right question. Uh, so we've, we've put a lot of work into measuring outfield defense. That's what catch probability is. Uh, infield defense is, is next. And I think people are surprised to find out it's so much harder than outfield defense to measure. You know, in the outfield, if three guys, you pretty much know who's going to be where. And uh, the ball takes a relatively constant path. The infield, there's so many other variables, right? There's not only just what kind of batted ball, because it's a hard liner, is it taking bounces? You know, is it, are, are they shifted? Is a runner being held on? And so maybe he's on the base as opposed to being off the base. Uh, then really why I'm not giving you a great answer is we don't have the answer yet. I mean, that's kind of one of our next big to-dos is measuring infield defense. And it's, it's really, it's going to be in-depth, and there's yeah, a lot to the, it. The one good use case for that one is uh, the ball that's hit between shortstop and third base. So the ball may be closer to the third baseman, but if you add in the time component of uh, being able to get to it and, and throw the ball, uh, the shortstop might actually be you know, closer in terms of making the play. So it's gonna, it's a, that's what the challenge is, is trying to figure out who, who is most responsible for a play and how much responsible is he. Uh, the next one is, this is not from me, it's from somebody else. So presenter two says, I have also used weighted on base average to rank pitchers. What are your thoughts about using pitcher weighted on base average to calculate weighted runs against uh, above average and the idea that 10 points of, of WRAA equates to one win above average? 
Well, the second part is true. Ten runs is one win. Uh, and definitely uh, WOBA for pitchers certainly works. It works better if you use a batted uh, ball profile that we just discussed and what Mike highlighted with, uh, with Kyle Hendricks. Um, do you assume all pitch locations have the same ideal pit launch angle? That's a good one. That's a great question. That's a really good yeah. question. Oh, yeah. I mean, my assumption without having any of the data handy is, is no, probably not. I mean, if let's say we're right and that guys are trying to elevate more uh, and then pitchers will adjust for that. And I, I think I saw Jeff Sullivan or someone wrote the other day that they're already seeing more high fastballs because it's harder to get up to that. So I think the answer to that is, is, is no, it can't be. It can't be the same ideal across the entire location. I, I would say the answer is always no. And the question, what we have to do is show how much it's different. So it's a great question, and that's what we should be showing is what's the, uh, the launch angle at various pitch locations. Somewhere in this room, I think Perry Husband is jumping up and down. <laughs> um, pitch FX had a big impact because it was widely available. Will field FX be available and more hit FX, or is that basically the data that you have available on Baseball Savant now? Well, I mean, technically those are different systems. I mean, field FX and hit FX, is, it's not StatCast. Um, but, you know, as far as the data available, we show, you know, Darren's done a great job of, of making that available. I remember when this got announced like three years ago, none of the three of us were working at the company yet. And I remember my reaction was probably the same as everybody else's at the time, which was, that's really cool. I hope I get to play with it. And uh, the commissioner at the time said uh, he wants there to be good access to the data in time. And I think we've done a, a pretty good job of that. I remember the first year you could only get, what, exit velocity on home runs and that was it. Uh, now you can get exit velocity for every batted ball, spin rate for every pitch ball. Uh, we're going to be adding the defensive stuff up there. So. You know, it's, it's really, it's important that the, the community get to be involved in this, and I, I think we're pretty happy with uh, the happy medium we've struck with how much data is out there. Yeah, and you can, you can download all that data from Baseball Savant. Uh, if you go to the StatCast search, there's CSV dumps of anything. You can get as granular as you want. Um, yeah, we hope to continue to add as, as we go along, but uh, I mean, most of the data is available. Um, this one is interesting because it goes back to outfield defense, and there was kind of a real-world application of this. In fact, we, we talked about this this morning. We were taking some for serious. Um, should outfielders change their outfield depth based on whether the pitcher is a ground ball or fly ball pitcher? And the, the practical application of this, if you didn't follow, is Andrew McCutcheon's defensive numbers struggled mightily, at least in defensive run save, because he was playing much shallower because the Pirates felt that they had a ground ball staff and a staff that would have weak fly ball contact, and it didn't play out that way and it ended up having a negative impact on his numbers. So should outfielders play uh, the depth based on the, the construction of the, of the staff? Yeah, absolutely. Everything is going to be unique. And, and we actually sh are tracking that for every team, every player, every pitcher, every combination of park, team, uh, hitter, pitcher. We know where the outfielders are playing. So we can see, like Jason Hayward, how he shifted over by 15 feet for certain batters and moves over for other batters. And they're trying to figure out what the optimal uh, you know, alignment is, and uh, we'll, we'll be able to probably to, you know, to assist uh, to, to some extent, extent for that. This is something we're working on uh, that I think Darren tweeted out a very preliminary version of it is just uh, positioning. Like who, who had to go the uh, least amount of distance to where the ball was going to land? And uh, it's some pretty interesting results. It looks like you know, extremely preliminarily the Cubs did a really fantastic job of positioning their guys close to where the bad ball would land. Now, obviously, those Cubs defenders are fantastically talented, but it also seems like they were put in a position to succeed. And that's really just you know, the best thing a, a coaching staff or front office can do is make their guys uh, as successful as possible and by putting them in that position. Well, Dexter Fowler, I think he played 20 feet deeper last season. So, I mean, they, they adjusted Dexter Fowler to where he was pl playing, and it seemed to have worked because he was – I think he was second closest to balls that we that he was closest to. So, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting topic. And to go along with what Mike was saying, uh, Jason Hayward, uh, he, Mike was asking, how come he doesn't have so many great plays? And, and Mike noticed, you know what? How come he doesn't have many opportunities? And basically it's because he's so well positioned that he wasn't given enough opportunities to make great plays. <laughs> Um, you refer to the percentage of chance of catching a ball and then give a novel interpretation to a catch that may or may not be visually good. How do you know that the percentage of catch statistic is correct or the truth? Well, it right. is actually in quotes. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, so, so right now, the, uh, the variables that we're considering is simply how much the fielder had to run and how much time he had to do it. So based strictly on those two variables, then we know exactly how how often the play is going to be made, because it, it simply becomes uh, a question of 
uh, jump route speed. Um, but as we add more variables, so the next one we'd be adding is uh, direction, uh, then we'll be able to tell more. Now for fielding, it's a lot easier because it's simply speed. It's not like uh, with batted balls where you're trying to hit in between fielders. So you're simply trying to go out all out to catch the ball. So it's a very, it's going to be a very simple uh, process to be able to get that. Yeah, and we're learning too, right? And we have to. This is so new. We have to figure out what's a what's a significant difference in catch percentage. One percent, probably not. But you know, is it five percent? Is, is it ten percent? Like that's as the season goes on. I'm excited to actually see how this plays out. Well, and another thing is like, you know, like Mike said, we're we're learning too. So the one I always say is like route efficiency. You can't just take out an average route efficiency and say this guy ran exceptional routes because sometimes running an, a perfect route, you don't want to. Like think of a sack fly. The outfielder wants to kind of loop around those balls and get, get in a position to, to make a great throw. So, you know, a lot of these things we're learning. We, we can't include in these metrics because there's, you know, always situations that will make it um, not ideal. And route efficiency is a good one. Jaren, is that one of the keys to keeping a lot of this kind of open sourced? Is that you you get either these ideas or these you know, kind of concepts you can look at? Because I mean, we were talking about this today with outfield defense, either on the jam shot that looks like a big swing, a guy breaks back, or the impact the wind would have, or if a guy is able to, you know, he may have a lower launch angle, but he backspins the ball, it's going to carry, and that might affect the route of an outfielder. I mean, is it just the discussion there, or is it stuff that you're hoping comes about research-wise? that helps to give you more clarity? Well, I think it's, it's, we're taking an incremental approach. We, we don't want to, I mean, you don't, we're not going to build a Ferrari first. We're going to start right. with something small. And, and then we'll, we'll incrementally build up. You know, adding wind, if we're going to take into effect wind, we need, there's a lot of other things we can take into account, right? So I mean, I think maybe we'll get there one day. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to take a very incremental approach and, and build on as we go. So would you say you're in the Pinewood Derby stage? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll defer to Tom's answer. We're in the third inning. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> um, according to an article published at 538.com last summer, StatCast didn't measure approximately 10% of balls in play. How long before this is no longer true? Uh, so the one thing uh, to remember is that when even those 89% that we do track, it's not like we track 100% of the path. So there's always going to be some sort of gap. Uh, so for those 11% that are missing, what we're going to be doing is we're going to have the exit velocity and launch angle for 100% of the balls. And for those 11% that are uh, you know, tougher to track, we're going to try to infer it based on other things. So as an example, if, you, if we don't know where the ball went, but we know that two fielders converged to a spot, then we know the ball would likely be there. And then, so we can try to reverse engineer what the, the batter ball uh, characteristics were based on everything else that we can uh, observe. So we're going to do our best to try to figure out everything that we ha aren't able to uh, track uh, exactly. Yeah, what works in our favor is that we know most of what those balls are, yeah, straight up or straight down. Uh, and those are almost always outs. And so that helps us a lot to infer you know, and estimate, as you said, to fill in the gaps there. Uh, what do you think is the most independent player statistic? That's a great question. I mean, I mean, pitch velocity, I guess. I mean, it depends what kind of player we're talking about. You know, I mean, Billy Hamilton has a, his foot speed. I mean, it, it, he's, I think of Giancarlo Stanton, Billy Hamilton, and Aroldis Chapman, and let's say Seth Lugo, because why not? As like, you know, the kings of, of the stack cast, but I love Seth Lugo. He's pitching today, and it's not in the stack cast stadium, so I'm very disappointed. Uh, but yeah, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, anything that has the fewer moving parts, so throwing, running, hitting, uh, those things. And the five they, tools. Yeah. And well, they, that, that's a great point. We are going to, so that's a great point. Right? So the five tool player, right? We're going to be able to, we're working towards quantifying that because it's always been, you know, what do the scouts think? And we're like, well, we can measure all five of those things. Uh, so we are going to be able to do that, I think, after we nail down infield defense and then, uh, you know, see who has above whatever percentile makes sense and find like real five tool players, not just like what the scouts think. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, Byron Buxton hopefully show up on that. <laughs> have you thought about, I mean, with that in mind, have you thought about how some of these, the data may show projection because clearly you're looking for, you know, young players are not a finished product, much like war isn't a predict predictive stat or many of these statistics aren't predictive in nature so much as the, their narrative. And they told the story of what happened. Have you thought at all about what you might focus on to see 
what shows projection in a player? Uh, I think it's a little early for that, but definitely that would be one of the goals because ultimately what we're trying to do is figure out what makes this particular player you know, unique and trying to focus on those, those tools that the scouts are looking at. That's really what we're doing here is just try to get rid of all the noise and see what it is that went into what made this player so good. Uh, will we ever see StatCast in college baseball? <laughs> I, I know a lot, of, a lot of college programs use TrackMan. I know that for a fact. Um, StatCast is a, is a bigger beast. Um, my hunch would be no, but um, I know a lot of uh, college programs are getting a lot more analytically inclined. I get emails from college programs all the time asking me questions like, how would, how would you start uh, tracking this? What are some, some tips you have for me? So it is interesting that, I mean, the, the whole stat casting, exit velocity, and launch angles, it's pretty interesting because you, you, hear, you hear kids in high school talking about exit velocity. You hear, you hear them talking about route efficiency. So you know it's that, that people are interested in it and it's starting to trickle down a little bit. I, I do think it's interesting that you mentioned the TrackMan stuff. I think you know there are some teams, there are teams that are able to access that too. When it comes to the amateur side, there are certain events, showcase events that have TrackMan available at it. So it's already made probably a more significant impact on the amateur side than people realize, right? And that's you know, some of the similar technology than what you right. use. Yeah, I, I hear about it from uh, Darren Sutton all the time because he works with Perfect oh, Game yeah. and TrackMan. There, he's, he's very invested in it. Um, but you know, I think Tom's kind of right. A lot of it just gets down to skills. Like if you look at a high school player who hits 700. You think, well, is he great, or was he just playing against terrible competition? You maybe don't know, but if you get to the skills and say, oh, wow, he actually had an exit velocity that's like 90th percentile in the country or something, that's probably more valuable than seeing you know, what the output was, because the competition could be all over the place. Uh, which is more critical to batted balls, the angle of elevation or the angle of incident? That's a Tom question. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably an Alan Nathan question. It's <laughs> <laughs> Alan Nathan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, don't, I, I will not pretend I have an answer for that because I don't. I'll defer to Tom. Have you run the numbers on probability of being barreled by pitcher? Does Voros McCracken's observation hold across <laughs> contact types? Uh, we have, yeah, we do yeah. have that. And I mean, that's, that's exactly what that WOBA that you saw with Kyle Hendricks, that's based on the batter ball profile. And uh, so definitely there is. Uh, a skill. Now, I'm sure Voris uh, wouldn't suggest that everyone is equal, uh, and, and that's really the what we try to do is just try to figure out what what is that scale, what is that range, and it's a lot tighter than most people would have originally. There's actually thought. a leaderboard on my site that right. you can pull up pitchers and sort it by percentage of barrels they've given up. As I remember, the highest percentage was like. Chris Young and Casey Fien or something like that. And yeah, they I, got I, lit up, so that makes sense. But I'm, barrels is just one of the six batted ball types that you know we were showing before, and they all they all have their importance. Uh, this one's for Darren. In a case competition, it created a two-pitch comparison using visual graphics. However, they had a hard time finding two consecutive pitch video clips from Baseball Savant. Is there a possible way to access every single video file <laughs> available? Do you have the bandwidth to be able I to do have been there? fighting for this for a very long time. Um, we are going to add more video this year. Um, and so my answer to that is we are not going to have every video this year. I'm fighting for it. I think it would be awesome. But we are definitely going to be adding more video. Um, I was talking with Mike earlier. So a lot of these like five-star plays wouldn't be tagged through our media system right now or four-star plays because if it doesn't look exactly exceptional, then why would they cut a video for it? So we're working on a process that will take, we'll say, our highlight plays and ingest them based off our criteria. So yes, um, there will be more video, but not every video. Tom, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned in now your almost a year? at BAM, maybe whether it either reinforced something that you believed or something that changed one of your beliefs. Uh, I don't know about the biggest, but I'm always like learning little things. And uh, one of the things is actually shifts. I think uh, if you uh, click, oh yeah, yeah. So this is kind of like uh, an encore. Yeah, <laughs> that's, what was, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so we have uh, all uh, 180,000 plate appearances, and we split it up based on whether the batter is a lefty or righty. 
And we can see that WOBA is similar for the two, the in-play rate is similar for the two. Uh, but how the fielders are aligned are much different. For lefty hitters, you get the shift rate uh, 25%. So for us, a shift is three infielders or more to one side or the other of the bag. And 64% uh, of the time, uh, they're in the standard spot. Uh, righties, though, are also getting shifted. So that's 7% of righties are getting shifted. If we split them up uh, and look at their performance in terms of uh, whether they're in the standard fielding alignment, shift, or everything else, which is I call out of position, uh, we see that for lefties, the, uh, the shift players uh, hit 13 points higher. Now, that doesn't mean that the shift contributes to that extra 13 points. It could be that only the really good hitters are being shifted. Uh, so we can't make any judgment on that one. But when we look at righties, we see that uh, they jump up by 28 points. Uh, now, again, we could say that potentially the only right-handed hitters being shifted are, are the very, very strong ones. Um, if we look at uh, the chart on the right, that just shows the breakdown in shifts by runners on base, and we can see that most of the time it's when the bases are empty. Uh, so if we look at the next uh, slide, here we look at the, when there's no runners on, so what the uh, performance changes are. And with the righties, that's the big one. There's a 43-point difference between uh, righty hitters hitting against standard alignment against the shift. Uh, now again, you could potentially say it's only the really, really good hitters, and that's why you have a 43 point. But it could be bad pitchers, it could be bad defense, it could be a bad alignment that they're basically overshifting. Uh, so that's one that I'm be interested to see. And if we look at uh, team by team, uh, on the left, it's uh, the the team offense, right-handed hitters against the shift. And on the, on the right, it's a team defense shift against uh, right-handed hitters. Uh, the Blue Jays, uh, interestingly, they're number one in terms of right-handed hitters being shifted. And that's because Encarnacion and uh, Bautista are big-time pull hitters. But they're also last uh, team defense in shifting against right-handed hitters. Um, so you can see there's not, not much consensus as to how to shift. Uh, you could also see the Pirates at the top right. Uh, when they shift against right-handed hitters, they got a great performance. Their WOBA is under 300. Uh, but when the Mariners shift and they're right behind uh, the Pirates, their WOBA lot is over 400. Uh, so again, it's not clear why. It could be that the Pirates are only shifting against bad hitters and Mariners against really good hitters. Uh, but this is one thing that's exciting to see that maybe the, the teams are potentially overthinking things. We are deep into the wormhole now. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, what about you? What, what do you think that you've learned in your now near, nearly two years there? Um, there's so much that, that we're always going to be learning. Um, there's just, we like Mike just mentioned, the wormhole. We find ourselves talking about things um, and, you know, well, why don't we do this? Well, because this will happen and this will happen. So, there, I mean, the data is awesome, but like you can almost get lost in it if, you, if you're not careful. Um, so I, I think, I mean, I, I've learned that we're always going to be learning when looking at this data. Do you ever feel like, the, like you're, you're finally, you've shoveled the snow almost out of the driveway just before another snowfall is coming, or, or are you always buried? Exactly. So, you, <laughs> I mean, you can get lost in the data very easily, so yeah. You, you, you need to go into it looking and say, what am I trying, what, what question am I trying to answer? And if you don't have that mindset, then you, you will get lost very easily in it. Mike, how about you? Because you, I, my feeling has always been that you had unique feel for what was going on on a baseball field and the analytics and kind of the, kind of the whole kind of package there. I mean, were there any true beliefs that you held that were dispelled or things that you've heard you know, baseball people talk about that have been confirmed in these couple of years? Well, we have, we have dispelled some myths, you know, the myth mm -hmm. of, of hard in and hard out. I think we, we dispelled that pretty early on. Um, but it, it is, it's really interesting to, you know, have the opportunity not just to, you know, work with these guys, but to talk to people in the game and say, oh, you know, is, is what we're doing passing the smell test true? Because we never, we never want that to happen and say, guys, this is crazy. And, we're learning that the, the players and some of the people in the game are really getting 
uh, some impact out of this. And that's been incredibly rewarding for us. I mean, I say I have, even like the worst day at my job is still like the best day at anybody else's <laughs> job because I get to talk to these guys and, and Jason and Corey and watch Billy Hamilton plays all day and talk to major league baseball players. So I think Darren's right though. Every time we answer a question, 10 more questions come up, and that's incredibly exciting. But that was supposed to be the purpose, right, of the, the sabermetric movement, right? Was that every time right. you answer, ask a question, you should get 10 more that you need to answer. And then you continue to bury Darren. The, the, hard part is not, the hard part is not answering the questions, it's identifying the right question. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.